So let's move from there to Judges chapter 7, if you would. It says, then, uh, verse 1, Then Jerubbabel, Jerubbaal, which is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Herod, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them, by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. I want to give us a warning right off the bat. And again, I'm speaking in the context that God in this season is wanting to meet with you in the place of your fear and your betrayal and wandering. And he's also wanting to meet with us collectively as a local church in this place. My warning is this, that what he is going to lead us into doing, we tend to take stock to see if we have enough, whatever it is, resource that we need to be able to do what he's called us to do. Do we have enough money? Do we have enough people? Do we have enough stuff? Do we have enough whatever? God, on the flip side, according to the verse we just read, is actually taking stock to make sure that we don't have enough resource. Can we move in this season knowing that? That what he's going to lead us into will require that we depend upon him in order for it to be done. Because he likes that. There would be indication in the scripture that he's most comfortable in that place where we're uncomfortable because it relies on faith and that faith is what releases God's activity from heaven into the earth. And so let's start there. Then verse 3. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart. Isn't that interesting? He didn't give Gideon instructions to determine who is afraid. He asked him to say to the people, if you are afraid, then you turn and depart, which means there was a choice. I'm going to elaborate that on in just a minute. Let him depart at once from Mount Gilead, and 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So we started with 32,000. When Gideon said, hey, if you're feeling afraid, you need to go ahead and go. And, the, and we went from 32,000 down to 10,000. What I'm firstly wanting to say here, guys, and, and I pray we can all hear this. Fact. To walk in what God is doing in the earth, in, in our generation, or any generation, there are qualifications. There are things that are going to keep us out of it. And there are things that are going to enable us to be able to move in what God is doing. That is not... Uh, uh, removed from the concept of God's grace. God's going to meet you wherever you are. The qualifications that we're about to look at, of which there are two, and I forgot to be a good preacher and tell you the main points and then, and then, tell, you, and then tell you what I told you, but maybe I should, maybe I should do that now. Here's what we're going to find out it, today. You ready? Here's my introduction. <laughs> Is that we're going to find out that, they're, that to move in what God is doing when he meets us and he commissions us unexpectedly rather than fixing our problems, he commissions us to move in what he's commissioning us to do. We've got to be of faith rather than fear and we need to be consecrated to him. Consecrated. Thirdly, I'll just throw this in there. 
that God's breakthrough that he wants to bring through us happens on the backside of obedience, not, not, not at the beginning, the backside. I want to say about those two qualifications, faith, not fear, consecration, both those things are not issues of performance. They are issues of the heart, meaning every single person, whether you're wearing spiritual diapers or you are a grandfather in the body of Christ, can do this. It is an issue of responding in the heart. You're never going to be perfect. You're never going to be worthy of walking in what God has called us to do, but he can't use us in certain circumstances. So let's look at this. If we go back to, uh, uh, yeah, verse 3, well, we don't have to read it, but the qualifications. First of all, these people that were with Gideon, there were 32,000 that were with Gideon out of all of the Israelites. Most of the Israelites were not with Gideon. They were still wanting to worship Baal. They were still in doubt and unbelief. They were not in faith. The 32,000 people rose up to follow Gideon. Are you following? Can I say that maybe perhaps we could say these are the people that do go to church. These are the people that maybe are reading their Bible. These are the people that are praying and doing all that good stuff. But of those people, two-thirds did not go into the call. I say that to say, let something of the fear of the Lord, holy fear of the Lord, rest upon us to know what on earth makes us think that we are not subject to that same thing. That one day we may stand before him and realize we navigated through our life on earth and we did not do the call. And what was the qualification? They had fear rather than faith. Now, the thing I want to point out here is that we are about to find out in verses 9 and 10 that everybody of these 32,000 people, including Gideon, had fear. The issue was when given the opportunity to leave because I'm afraid, the people who left, left and obviously couldn't go on. The people who stayed, they had fear too, but they said, I'm not leaving. The issue is not, do you have fear? Because let me tell you, every single one of us automatically disqualifies. The issue is, are we going to listen to and be moved by our fear? Or is there something in us that says, I am convinced God. I mean, I'm, they're, they're, end of sentence. I am convinced God. The biggest leaps of faith that Mind and I have taken in the call of God, I'm telling you there has been plenty of possibility to be, to be uh, temptation, to be fear, and fear that would come upon our hearts. But, there, but why did we make the leap of faith in the end? It ultimately boils down to being convinced of his character and nature. If he is absolutely faithful, if he is who the gospel is, says he is. God became man and died for me. He's absolute love. He died for me, but death couldn't hold him down. He rose up triumphing over death. He's powerful. If he is those two things and he loved me, he loved me like that, like, like scandalously loved me, but he didn't love me like this is so wrong. Like, like I'm so sorry. Like, why did you love me like this? 
Like, you're perfect, and you come and die, take the punishment for my imperfection. If, he, if that's the way he is towards me, I am convinced I can trust his character, and therefore, on that premise, whatever he says, I have to believe it. Even if everything in me wants to run from it because it's so scary, I believe it. Are you following? You can choose today to take that posture. Either God, you're real and you are all these things, therefore I, I am choosing to trust you. There's no delineation, there's no gray area. I'm choosing you. You're my God. Or the only other option is you're just probably not really God. We might as well go out and party. Like, wouldn't that be more fun? So, that's what I say. But the reality is, I know he is alive, he is real, he's done some amazing things in my life, and he's going to do more in my life, but also in our collective journey together. So they all had fear, but they were, the, those who made it through were prepared to face fear in faith. Let's go on to uh, verse 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people still are too many. <laughs> Thanks, God. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them there for you. And then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. Are you ready for qualification number two out of two? Here it is, verse five. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. I love how God oftentimes just does stuff in ways that were not expected and don't really fit our westernized clinical way of doing things. Like what the heck kind of way of testing is this? See how they drink water out of a brook. I mean this is, okay. But let me demonstrate what we're talking about. We've got two ways of, of, of getting water from this water source. The one is people who did, like it says, like a dog if you can pardon me to kind of act like a dog at the moment. That means they got down, and they were doing this, right? They were, they were coming to the water source, which was a resource that they needed, right? Fair statement, we all need water. Even if we're following God and trusting in God and living by faith, we, our body physically needs water still, right? And they came to the water source, and when they got there, they were focused on the water source. They were focused on getting their need. They were, their attention went from whatever it was to, okay, this is what we're doing now, so I'm focused on this. The other people did this. They kept on their feet, and they would have lapped it up like this. Do you follow the difference there? The one focuses totally on the need at hand. My need. It's not evil. It's not like they're sinning. They weren't going to a brothel. They were going to get water. But the other people kept their, there was something in their heart that would say, I'm on duty. I can't, I can't let my attention go to this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep my focus on the duty at hand and get water while I'm doing that. That's what the call of God looks like. That's what responding to Jesus looks like. Please hear this. Most Christians, i.e., if I can be so bold as to say, most of us would want to go tomorrow into Monday 
And we just had our spiritual thing on Sunday. We go into Monday, and now it's the real stuff. Now we got to go make money. Now we have to go to work. we got to do the stuff. I've got to vacuum the house. I've got to go help my kids. I've got to get them rides to school. And I've got to do this stuff. And it's all the real stuff. Is it evil? Here's what the call of God looks like. It looks like saying yes to God and still having the stuff that we need, but my heart is now consecrated to God. So while I'm going to work, while I'm taking care of domestic responsibilities, while I'm doing those things, I'm not getting down and looking only at that. I'm up here saying, God, I'm ready. God, I'm, 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 I'm looking for, is there the enemy attacking? I'm going to be ready. God, are you saying something? Is now the time? Because I'm ready. I'm not, I'm not going to focus only, solely, on the need at hand. I'm going to do the normal, natural life in the context of I have been separated to a call. And I'm looking for it. I'm, ex- I'm living in expectation of the moving of the Holy Spirit to, to respond to what he wants to do when he wants to do it. You can have spiritual diapers on and do that. So the qualifications are this. Determined to follow whatever he wants to do in faith rather than being led by the voice of fear. And two, it's consecration of heart to his purpose. I would dare say many, and it breaks my heart, many, many, especially in a a place like America. Some of you are old enough to remember we used to call America a Christian nation. Whatever that means. I don't even know what that would mean. But the point is, is that the predominant population of America saw themselves as Christians because they went to church, not, not, a, not a mosque, not a, not a synagogue. You follow what I'm saying? Uh, and, but the idea is we're Christian on that premise, and the Bible doesn't teach anything like that. You know what the, being a Christian is? It's all about Jesus. And it is not just about getting your sins forgiven. Jesus is Lord. Becoming a Christian is about repenting of anything that isn't his will so that I can turn my heart to trust fully in him and to follow his will. 101. That's what we're looking at here. This is what Christianity is. Today, this week, you and I have the opportunity to consecrate our hearts and to say, Lord, if I've been living a Christianity that doesn't include consecration to you, where I've been living like this in the real week and kind of focused on my needs and focused on my family and focused on all my my stuff, I want to make a turn to where I have been set apart and I'm looking for your will. I'm I'm set apart. Are Are we making sense? So let's go on to verse 6. And the number of those who lacked, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. Do you remember where we started? 32,000? Let's not mistake the, 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 the weighty reality that Jesus, not Paul, Paul, me, not Paul, even the apostle. Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. And if you look at the context of those words, it is all, it's not about God saying, you're just not good enough, so I'm not choosing you. It's all about our 
heart response to what he's doing. We determine, really, if we're chosen or not. Let's, let's, let's let, I, I, why am I saying let's receive those heavy words? Because in my love for us as a community, I want all of us to be chosen. I don't want to see anyone in here live a life of survival as opposed to responding to the call. But let me warn you, responding to the call, this is what it looks like. Is Jesus good enough to say yes to these things? I think he is. A l- maybe a little bit. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Verse 7, and then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. God needed a people where there was a 300 people, where, but there was an atmosphere amongst these 300 of rock-solid faith. We are trusting in the character and nature of God. We are saying no to fear, and we are separated to his purpose. We're not going back to our own little personal world. We're, we're, we're going to live for purpose. If you can get even just 300 people against, I don't know how many Midianites and Amalekites there were, but it surely was way more. It was 300,000 perhaps. If he can just get those 300, he can do whatever. Why am I saying that? Some of you may, may think, well, what is Border City Church going to do? Look at all these empty chairs. Look at, all, look at how, how small are we. I, I, would, I, would, I would say maybe God's not so concerned about numbers, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. In fact, why don't we say it right now? God doesn't care about numbers. He just needs us to be in faith and consecrated to his call. Let's go to verse 8. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. And now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. I love when God speaks these things of putting something in your backbone, speaking destiny and purpose and his presence with you. Listen to this. But if you, Gideon, are afraid, what? If you are afraid, we just went through a pretty big sieve to make sure that no one left was afraid. And here God is acknowledging the fact that Gideon might be afraid. And in fact, what we're about to read is that evidently he was because he does the thing that God tells him to do if he is afraid. What's the point? Again, it, God wasn't saying to those 32,000, whoever isn't afraid, you can stay. He was saying, whoever is going to stay, even though they're afraid. I know I'm reiterating it, but maybe it's worth it. And he says, uh, if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp of Pura, well, uh, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. Verse 11, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. And then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying on the valley, in the valley, as numerous as locusts. In other words, they couldn't even be, it was innumerable. They couldn't even be counted. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. These, my friends, innumerable numbers well-stocked, well-trained, well-resourced versus 300 men who were all in poverty. The numbers and the, and the, and the, the taking stock of the situation is impossible. Would you agree? 
Let's find out what happens. Verse 13. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream. Now this, he's, he's hearing, he's overhearing a, a conversation going on in the enemy's camp. Two people that were talking on the enemy's side. Uh, uh, telling a dream to his companion. He said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it so hard that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Let me just explain a little bit to you. In that culture, that time, in that context, uh, barley bread would have been a powerful symbol. They would have known what that represents. Bar you eat barley bread when you are down to nothing. It's, it's poor man's bread. I can't think of a, of a good example right now. <laughs> yeah, be beans and rice, yeah. I mean, you can, yeah, I don't have a good example, but uh, I should because I like food and, and I know the food stuff that, uh, you know, they, instead of, uh, oh, forget it. <laughs> Hamburger helper, there we go, thank you. They were, they were eating barley bread, and the Midianites knew that the Israelites were down to eating barley bread, and they knew also of Gideon. Why? Because Gideon had suddenly surged as this newfound leader, but they knew, you remember, he was threshing wheat in the wine press. He was, they knew that he was eating barley bread, and so when this dream came, they knew that barley bread represented somebody of poverty coming into the camp, hitting a tent, and it knocking down. They knew that it meant that the poor were about to destroy the rich, and that was the interpretation. Gideon got to hear the enemy interpreting a dream from God given to those people that was going to strike fear in their hearts and was going to put something of his shoulders back and his chest puffed out within himself. Because he needed that. God knows he needed that. He knew he needed that. And you know what? God also knows what you need. To have your chest puffed out and your, and your shoulders turned back. And he will be faithful as you're walking in obedience to give you those little things. In fact, I have a friend. If I can digress just a little bit. I know you're yawning, so I'm going to be quick. <laughs> That's so ugly. I mean, why would a preacher say that to somebody? In front of everybody. I know you're yawning. And you, wake up. <laughs> um, I have a friend on the NCMI team. Uh, most of you know we were at the uh, Equip gathering in, in Chicago, and he preached, and, um, and I found out later that he felt so bad about his message. He felt like he wasn't prepared well enough. He felt like it didn't go through. He felt like it wasn't clear. He felt so bad about it, and that it, the insecurity was so great that he didn't even want to show up at the event the next morning and face everybody. He just didn't even want to. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about, like, some, I'm talking about, like, somebody on the NZMI team, like, seasoned, mature, all that. Um, but that was just the reality. He went, and when he showed up at the pre-team meeting where the members of the team gather and pray be and before the morning begins, there were, like, three different people who all came up to him and was like, dude, God spoke to me so much through your message last night. Thank you so much. Next person. Bro, that was just so helpful. Thank you. You know, and I'm not talking about an arrogance. It's, he said how much he, how grateful he was to, to, to know you don't listen to that voice of insecurity. You don't know 
how much of another perspective there is out there of what God has, has, is doing in and through you. And so it's, I would say to us, there's a lot of voices that are going to say, oh, I don't even want to go today. I don't even want to show up. And what a tragedy if you listen to that voice. And so here's Gideon, and he hears this thing. He is feeling quite good, and it says in verse 15, and so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. I love it. He didn't just puff his chest out, actually, and turn his shoulders back. He looked at God with gratitude and worshipped, and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. I love that he said your hand and not my hand, because he, he kept the eye on the ball. This isn't about me. And in fact, his act of obedience was to rise up as a leader to bring other people into what God was doing together with him. Such is the case with the church. This is not the ministry of Paul Nichols and Minda Nichols. This is the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we all, regardless of what our role is and what our gifting is, have the privilege of responding to his call and to go wherever he's leading so that he can do what he wants to do in the city and beyond. So God helped Gideon see something of a weakness in the enemy camp that God had put together. God's the one, I believe, that gave that dream and, uh, and, and interpretation. And he put fear, God struck fear into the hearts of the enemy. And so from that, Gideon was able to put together a battle plan. Are you ready to see the battle plan? Verse 16, here it is. Very well thought out battle plan. Obviously, a man trained in the things of military strategy. You're going to hear it right here. Verse 16, then he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand and with empty, uh, and, uh, with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. Good strategy, right? We're going to do some, some music. Paul, Paul, uh, Paul Kulik would like that. We're going to do some trumpet action, and we're going to have some torches put inside pitchers, which basically means that they were lit inside the pitcher, but because they were inside the pitcher, they would not be, the flame would not be visible. Good battle strategy, right? Very savvy. Verse 17, and he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, and all, uh, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. In verse 19, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. I just want to point out that middle watch. That was strategic. What did Gideon do? He went at the middle watch, which means at the very middle of the night, when it was the wee hours of the morning, when it was perfect silence because there were, there were no, no one in the camp were making any noise because everyone would be asleep. When light would be most visible because the darkness would be greatest at that point, he comes with the pitchers hiding the lit torches so that the flame could not be discerned. And when they came to the very edge of the camp, only then did they throw these pitchers down, which would have struck a fire. And uh, they began to blow their trumpets now, in a normal army, just let me, if in case you don't know, in, in this time, today, and any other time, normally, soldiers did not go to battle with trumpets. Are we, are we clear on that? 
Some, uh, back in those days, there would be a, a trumpet call, but it would only be a few people that would actually have the trumpets. The rest would be, have their spears and their swords and, and what have you. By blowing 300 uh, trumpets, it looked as though they were more powerful and more numerous than they actually were. By having this flame, it kind of probably began to obscure their ability to see how many people were out there, and they were just yelling, and the trumpets are blaring, and they think this dream that has come, here Gideon is coming, the dream said that they were going to come and knock over our tents, and they were already kind of afraid, and here it is, and they wake up, and they don't know what's going on, and they, you know, and they're all confused, and let's read what actually happens here. Then the 300, uh, three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, and they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in the right hands for blowing, and they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Why would they say Gideon? Because of the dream. Because the interpretation of the dream was that Gideon was going to come. And they wanted to make sure that everybody in that camp knew this is Gideon. Verse 21, and every man stood in his place all around the camp, and the whole army ran and cried out and fled. Listen to this. And when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set. Who did it? The Lord. Well, up to this point, everything that God, Jesus has done when he meets us in our fears, betrayals, and wanderings, is he calls us to do something. Despite the fact that, if we're honest, we probably wanted him to sovereignly wave the wand. And, and but here on the back end of the obedience, who's the one who really makes it happen? That it would be to his glory and credit from beginning to end. Our only role, my friends, is to yield ourselves. To believe and to do what he says regardless of fear. And that's not insignificant. It's not like that's not something to do. That is. Actual action has to be taken. But the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia towards Zeroah as far as the border of Abel, Meholah, and Tabith. Man had to rise up. Mankind, people had to rise up, go and obey. Then God makes it happen. Can I ask us a question? Can I ask us all to ask ourselves the question? How in this season, as Jesus is meeting us, will I respond? You've seen what is the benefit of believing and obeying and turning from fear. In our fear, in our betrayal, in our wandering, this is what God says to us. You, Rebecca, are mighty. You, Peter, take risky and courageous steps of obedience. You, other Rebecca, go and save my people. <laughs> and the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. I want you to take note of that. This started with the response of one man. The weakest man, uh, the, of the weakest tribe, of the weakest family of the weakest tribe, the weakest man of the weakest family of the weakest tribe. One man obeying. And now we not only have the Abiezerites, but in, in extension we have Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh all rising up with him. This is what serving God looks like, guys. 
Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites. It gets even wider, even more people, and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Bara and the Jordan. And then all the men, all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Bara and the Jordan. One person's obedience results in an ever-widening circles of breakthrough. Jesus, you, you say, man, I've got, so many, I've got these problems. We all have problems, and they are real. Jesus does want to meet us in the problems, but here's what he wants to do. He wants to use you as his conduit, as his vessel. Not just so that your problems get fixed. Your problems get fixed as you rise up in obedience to become the solution to the nation's issues. So amazing. Verse 25, and they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb. They killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of Jordan. Let's just respond to this. Uh, I just want to, again, because a good preacher does this. He tells you what he's going to tell you. He tells you, and then he tells you what he told you. little tip for you budding preachers. We can be a part of what God's doing as we're led by faith, not fear. As we are consecrated. I, I believe all of this really is that issue right there. Consecrate. Even though led by faith, not fear. That's an issue of consecration. I've decided to follow Jesus. I had a conversation recently with some young men who said, I'm, yeah, follow Jesus, that sounds good. I said, okay, well, let's talk about baptism. Well, I'm not ready to be baptized. Why? Because I don't want to repent of this other stuff. If, 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 you know, if I'm sitting on this stool here and Jesus says, follow me, I, and he's walking through that door, I can't be like, well, you know, this isn't a stool, it's a drum. Uh, I can't say, uh, Jesus, I, I definitely I want to follow you, but I'm just going to stay here. Because you have to leave. You literally, physically cannot follow Jesus without repenting. And so consecration is what the Lord is saying to us as a church right now. Consecrate. That is what it means to be a Christian. That you've chosen to follow Jesus. You have a revelation of who he is that makes your heart want to follow Jesus because you have seen him as the Messiah. You know him to be the one who loves you. He's revealed something of himself to you that makes you yearn. It's not to say that you don't have an aversion to repentance. Every single one of us do. It doesn't mean that you don't have fears and all that. But you've seen a greater light than those cheap substitutes. And you want him. That's what it is to be a Christian. Consecrate. The reason I'm saying it is I believe that the idea of Christianity has become so unbiblically watered down in our nation that we think we are Christian when we're not. I go to church. I don't go to synagogues. I'm a Christian, right? Well, I grew up with my parents. They're Christians. I'm, I'm a Christian. No. Jesus is what it is to be a Christian. I'm not saying that out of any kind of fire and brimstone mad preacher. Please hear me. I'm saying that out of love because I hate the enemy and I hate deception. Jesus is the savior of mankind. And the church needs to wake up to that first. And he brings breakthrough after obedience. I just want to ask you to close your eyes if you would.